Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. As we continue our series that will be lasting several weeks on the fatherhood of God. This is a very important series. You cannot understand the Christian life without a clear understanding of what it means for God to be our Father. And let's listen to God's Word together. We're going to see the fatherhood of God and what it helps us and how it helps us to understand God's grace and our hope. You see, our adoption as children of God show the greatness of God's grace. The New Testament gives two yardsticks to measure the love and the grace of God. The first measure is found in 1 John chapter 4. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4. And that is what you would expect, the cross. In the Old Testament, when the measure of God's power was given, they would always refer back to His mighty hand delivering the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh through the plagues. By the way, the Ten Commandments is on tonight. Uh, When you get home, you might still get a little bit of it. Uh, And when the New Testament speaks of the love of God, it uses two yardsticks to measure that love. And the first one is the cross. And we see it in 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. And by this the love of God was manifested in us. You want to know that you want to see the love of God? Here he's getting ready to tell you where you see it. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You want to see the love of God? You look to the cross. Because at the cross you see the heart of God the Father being willing to love so much that He gave His unique Son, Jesus. And that's what the term only begotten means. It means unique. Jesus is the child of God, the Son of God, in a unique way that none of us will be able to be His Son in that way. Uh, Jesus is God, the second person of the Godhead, and He is the Son of God in that unique way. Uh, And in the cross we see God's self-giving, self-sacrificing love, that He was willing to give His Son as a propitiation. Now that's a big word, but the meaning of it is... Important to understand. A propitiation is an appeasement. It is an appeasement of anger by the giving of a sacrifice. Jesus appeased the holy wrath of God when he gave himself as the sacrifice, the payment for our sins. God poured his wrath on Jesus that we deserve to have poured on us. The holiness and justice of God demands that sin be punished. And Jesus was the propitiation, the propitiatory sacrifice 
that appease the holy anger of God. As Isaiah 53 says, that his soul looked on him and was satisfied. That is, the father looked upon the son and saw that the full vent of the holy wrath of God over the sins of his people had been vented on Jesus Christ. And in so doing, God the father was satisfied. Yes, my justice, my righteousness is satisfied. Therefore, God does not have holy wrath toward us because it has been spent justifiably on the Lord Jesus who willingly took it upon himself. It's like you pouring out your full anger and fury on your child, though your child was totally innocent and someone else was the cause of your fury and anger. Now think about that. Somebody else has transgressed, has broken the standard, your holy anger and fury are brought to their full measure. And yet rather than venting it upon that person who deserved it, you turned on your innocent child and you vented that holy wrath and anger on them. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, it is fair. Because God in His love was moved to do so and Jesus in His love was moved to receive that holy anger. Jesus willingly received it. You know, Jesus did not experience hell during those three days he was in the tomb. Scripture never says that. He experienced hell while he was on the cross. Because you see, hell is the full unmitigated fury and holy hatred of God on sin. It is the judgment of God on sin. That's what hell is. And Jesus experienced that on the cross. I believe that is the symbolism of the darkness that came for those three hours on the cross. God was pulling the veil because man was not worthy to gaze upon the Son of God experiencing the full fury and anger of the Holy God. Man is not fit to gaze upon that. And He pulled the veil of darkness across it. Such agony and fury that Christ experienced for us. And the Father placed it upon Him in love. It would have been easier for God the Father to have taken it upon Himself. Right? It would be easier for you to take your own life than to place the life of your child to be taken for somebody else. So that is a measure of God's love. A love greater than what we have. Much greater. Not a one of us in here would be willing to give the life of one of our children for this whole auditorium. Not a one of us would. Be honest, you wouldn't. You might give your own life. Might do that. Because you'd say, well, my life and all these people. But you wouldn't give your child's life. You wouldn't do it. Don't even think you would. You wouldn't. You wouldn't do it. But God did it. He did it. And it was that separation that somehow in a mysterious way that we'll never understand, maybe not even in glory. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Somehow... God forsaking God, a mystery above mysteries, but it happened. In the eternal heart of God, it was like an eternity too. See, we think, well, it was just for a moment. But you see, God is always in the present. It was like an eternity for God to be separated from His Son. But He was willing to do it. That was His love. The second yardstick of God's love is over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The verse that Ben's already referred to. See how great 
a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. See how great a love. The cross shows the self-sacrificing love of God. The cross shows us His self-giving love. Us being adopted as children of God shows His personal involvement with us. Shows the personal involvement aspect of the love of God. John says, see how great a love God has for us that we are children of God, that He's taken us and made us children? It would be like you going down to the state penitentiary, going on death row, and you finding the most vile, wicked, cruel person on death row who had been tried and found guilty by the courts of murder deserving to be killed himself, maybe multiple murders. It would be like you taking that person and saying, and somehow being made possible, I'm going to take you and adopt you into my family. And I'm going to give you my last name. So when people see you and speak of you, they'll think about me. It'd be like you, if Ted Bundy, Bundy were alive, taking Ted Bundy, adopting him and your family, giving him your last name. Ted Bundy Mulkey. He would no longer be known as Ted Bundy, but as Ted Bundy Mulkey. The son of Lynn Mulkey. He'd be like you taking him, adopting him, and putting him in your family, letting him live with your family in your house, taking your name, and you providing food and shelter for this man. The most wicked and vile criminal you can imagine, you taking him and embracing him in your family and providing for him. And that doesn't even come close to what love the Father has for us, that He took us in our spiritual gutter, in our spiritual degeneration and spiritual mire. And what does He do? He takes us and says, I'm going to take you into my family. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to give you my name. And when people see you, they're going to think of me. And I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. I am going to protect you. I'm going to give you direction. I'm going to enter into a love relationship with you that is personal and that is real. You get a glimpse of why John says how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. That He would take you and me and place us in His family. That we're so unworthy, so undeserving. That He would enter into a love relationship with us. That we would be able to experience God working in our lives. That the God of the universe would relate to me and you on a personal basis. That He would be concerned about what's going on in your little world. That He would move in your life to give you victory over sin. That He would answer your prayers. That He would guide you. And in order to enter and to walk in this personal relationship with Him, you need to submit to His Lordship in your life. You need to love Him supremely. You need to trust Him. And as you do that, you will experience God daily in your life. What a great love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And you know, God adopted us out of His grace, not our merit. Look over in Ephesians, back to the left, Ephesians chapter 1. We were totally, absolutely unworthy, undeserving of this adoption. 
It was purely an act of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 5 and 6. Let these words just sink into your spirit. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, literally His good pleasure. That's all. He just wanted to do it. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Not because you deserved it, but strictly because of His good will and pleasure that He adopted you and brought you into His family, that His grace might be revealed to the praise and glory of that grace that He freely gave us in Christ. In the ancient world, adoption was a practice ordinarily confined to the rich. A man would not be satisfied with his sons and he had a large inheritance. Or for some reason, uh, he may not be uh, agreeable to give the inheritance to the sons that he has. And so he would go out and he would find him a son, an adult male. He would find an adult male that he felt was worthy to bear his name and to take over his inheritance. And to manage it after his death. And so that adoption was based purely on a man's worth. He'd find a suitable man. It was like a business arrangement. But I want you to know that's not the case with God's adoption of us. There was absolutely nothing worthy in us. Our character and record showed that we were very unworthy to bear His name and very unfit to be placed in His family beside the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, the Heavenly Father chose us, He redeemed us, He cleansed us, He justified us, and made us sons and daughters, taking our place beside Jesus, loving us as much as He loves Jesus, giving us the same inheritance that He gave Jesus, purely because of His grace. And it was to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He bestowed on us. I want you to also know that He adopted us out of His free choice. Not some duty. Now let's think about it. Adoption by very nature has to be a choice of somebody's, right? I mean, sometimes we have natural children and we have not had a whole lot of choice in it, so to speak. We kind of call those accidents. But I want you to know nobody accidentally adopts somebody. You just don't do it. <laughs> I mean, you don't wake up one day and say, man, I've adopted somebody and I didn't even realize it. I mean, you know, you may not be planning for a child and find out you've got one on the way. So you might, in a sense, not have chosen that, but nobody adopts without choosing to do so. I mean, you have to go through a lot to adopt somebody. You have to really want to. You have to have thought about it and thought about it and made the necessary steps and procedures and plans. It is a well-thought-out, much-desired procedure. And so it is with our God when He adopts us into His family. He does so not because he has to, but because he wants to. It was his total and absolute sovereign free choice to adopt us. So you see, in the light of our adoption into the family of God, we can see how great a love God has for us. And how great his grace is. That he would put us in his family. Give us his name. Bring us into his home beside the Lord Jesus and give us the inheritance that He gives Jesus. How great.
a love the Father has given upon us. We should be called children of God, and such we are. Also, the adoption shows the glory of the Christian hope. You see, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship, and it is a relationship of hope. Hope always looks forward. Christianity always looks forward. The best is yet to come. Faith that looks forward with confident expectation. How can we know what awaits us? Well, God's told us in His Word. And our adoption gives us the key to understand what's ahead. First, as children of God, we have a promised inheritance. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 3 to the right. We have a promised inheritance waiting on us. 1 Peter chapter 1. Again with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have an inheritance. The Father has given us one. And the reason for adoption in the first century was to give an inheritance, to have an heir. And God has adopted us to give us a great inheritance. It is a guaranteed inheritance. Look what he says about it. First he says it is imperishable. Now that word means not decaying. It means indestructible. It means not able to be destroyed. That same word is used of the Bible, the Word of God... It's indestructible. And it's used of the resurrection body that will be incorruptible, indestructible. And he says your inheritance is indestructible. It is no way anything can happen to it to destroy it. It's guaranteed up there. Next he says it is undefiled. That is without defect or flaw. Unstained or tainted. Not at all. Totally undefiled. He says it will not fade away. That is, not dry up. It will not wither away. You see, there's no inflation in heaven. Amen? See, inflation could eat up an inheritance here in this life. It eats on it. But I'll tell you, there's no inflation in heaven. It will not fade away, not one bit. It will not dry up. It will not wither away. And it is reserved, he says, reserved in heaven for you. That means to take care of, to guard something. It means to keep watch over something. No one can steal it away. God's keeping watch over it for you. And look at these words. You want, you want eternal security? Look in verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now if it depended on you, you could lose your salvation. But it doesn't depend on you. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I don't know of anything that can break through the power of God. No heaven, no power in heaven on earth or beneath the earth can do it. Your salvation is secure. Your gift is secure. Your inheritance is there. And then he says, as children of God, we have a great mission. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because we are children of God and He is our Father, He's given us a great mission. 
And with confident expectation, we can fulfill that mission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these new things are from God. What new things? What new things is he talking about? He's talking about victory over sin. He's talking about victory over habits. He's talking about that zeal for prayer. He's talking about that burden to pray for lost people. He's talking about that unity that God gives the body. These are the new things that he's bringing. And he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have a mission, and our mission is to share the message of reconciliation, that God has done what is necessary to remove the barrier between man and himself, that barrier being man's sin. And through the cross, He has removed that barrier. And men and women, boys and girls, must call upon the name of Jesus. Ask Him to save them and be their Lord and Savior. Commit themselves to Him. Through faith, receive that righteousness that is from God. That is our message of reconciliation. And that as they see the love of God in us, they will see the love of God toward them. And that goes back to what we said this morning, the need for unity in the body. Jesus says that they may be one, that the world might know that you sent me. Our ministry of reconciliation cannot be separated from our own fellowship and quantity and oneness. As we live the oneness that Christ has for us, as we live the love of God showing through us, our neighbors will see a difference and we will accomplish the mission of God in our community, in our city, and in the world. We've got a mission. And that is the word of reconciliation because we are children of the King. Our Father is God. And then thirdly, as children of God, we will have a family gathering in heaven. Look in John 14. John 14. It's going to be a family gathering in heaven. A King James translation has done an injustice to this concept. The word mansions is not the concept at all that the Greek has. John 14, 1 and 2. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now, it doesn't make sense in my Father's house are many mansions. But in my Father's house are many dwelling places, rooms. That's what he's talking about concept is a big house with many rooms. You see, concept is not you're going to have your cabin over here and you're going to have your cabin over there and you're going to have your cabin in the corner of glory land over there. One of those good southern gospel songs. <laughs> but we're going to all be together as a family. We're going to have dwelling places in the mansion of God. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If I, it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am there, you will be also. The picture is one big house with many rooms. It's the Father's house. 
And I guess at night we'll say, good night, Lynn, good night, Frank, good night, Wendell. <laughs> like Walton's, right? It won't be night, though, amen. won't be night, but we'll all be having a good time. Come down and see me over here. Let's meet for supper. Let's meet for lunch. I imagine we'll all be around a big table. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? A house so big. But yet that's the concept. It's a family concept. We'll be family in heaven. It'll be a family reunion. All the barriers will be broken down. Racial, ethic, economic barriers. They'll all be broken down. We'll all be family. We won't judge people prematurely by how they look and how they dress and all those things. Man, we'll just be one family. Loving each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Great family reunion. That's a great hope, isn't it? And then last, as children of God, we shall share in the glory of our brother Jesus. Romans 8. Share in the glory of our brother Jesus. Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs, that means the same inheritance. If indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You remember from our previous study of this passage that that inheritance, that glory, is both an inward and outward thing. The inward thing is the perfect character of Jesus. We have as our inheritance the perfect character of the Lord Jesus. We shall be conformed to His image absolutely. Absolute perfection awaits us morally, spiritually, as we come into the, present, into the presence of our Lord. And then secondly, there's that outward glory as well. Just as Jesus' resurrected body was a body of glory, so our resurrected body shall also be glorified after the very glory of Jesus. As we have seen in our study of the resurrection, that though we're sown in weakness, we'll be raised in power. Though we're sown corruptible, we'll be raised incorruptible. Though we're sown mortal, these bodies will be raised immortal. Though we're sown human, we'll be raised, it says, spiritual. That great resurrection day awaits us as part of our inheritance. And it is going to be such a glorious day that, remember, creation strains, stands on its tiptoes, leaning, looking, waiting to see that great day that we shall be revealed as the children of God. See, children of God, the Father in heaven and His children. So when we look at the fatherhood of God and our adoption as sons, we can see the greatness of His love and His grace and the greatness of our hope as we confidently, with expectation, look forward to what God has in store for us as children in the kingdom. Are you a child of God? Remember, it's not automatic. Just to know the things about God doesn't make you a child of God. The Bible says to those who believed on Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who received Him, that believed upon His name. To be a child of God means you must come to a place in your life that you believe so strongly that Jesus is God. that He died on the cross and paid the price for your sins. That you commit your life to Him and ask Him to be your personal Savior. 
You surrender yourself to Him. You're willing to turn away from every sin that might be in your life. And you say, Lord, I'm willing to turn away. I am willing. That's repentance. Not that you'll be able to do it in your own because you can't. But you must be willing. Lord, I'm willing to turn away from anything in my life that's not pleasing to you. And I come to you. I want you to be my personal Savior. I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want a place in heaven. If you've come to that place of calling upon the name of the Lord, then the Bible says you're a child of God. And all this is true about you. If not, if you've not come to that place, the Bible says that the holy wrath of God abides upon you. And all there awaits for you is certainty of condemnation and the holy wrath of God through eternity. Call upon the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. If you've not called upon Jesus, if you've not asked Him in His mercy to be your Savior, do so. Do so tonight. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You loved us so much that You took us into Your family and have called us Your children. And we are Your children. And it was totally because of Your sovereign goodwill and pleasure. Nothing that we deserved or merited at all. But You desire to walk in a personal love relationship with us that we might experience You daily as we walk with You as a person, as our Father. Thank You for the hope that You've given us as Your children of that inheritance, the ministry of reconciliation, of that great glory that awaits us. May Your love sustain us each day, no matter what we go through. May we remember that You are our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.